This is Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. In collaboration with Australian Jewish News, check them out at ajn.timesofisrael.com. Also in collaboration with Arutz Sheva, israelnationalnews.com. About a month ago, 300 Israelis stripped naked and posed in the middle of the desert. This demonstration was part of an art installation photographed by world-renowned photographer Spencer Tunick. And this wasn't the first time. Back in 2011, there were 1,200 subjects, all naked, photographed by Tunick. But all this wasn't done to simply photograph a bunch of nudists in the middle of the desert. There was a bigger motivation. Ari Leon Fruchtmann, the man... Fruchter. 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 And a man. Excuse me. Excuse me. <laughs> Ari Leon Fruchter. The man who staged this whole thing hopes these images will raise awareness and ignite a wave of activism that may help slow or even stop the disappearance of the Dead Sea. We are thrilled to be joined today by Ari Leon Fruchter to talk nudism, environmentalism, and activism, and maybe some other isms. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you? Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So, first of all, sorry. I hate when people get my name wrong, so I apologize. Um, so, where did this crazy idea come from? I mean, it actually was an evolution. I mean, Spencer Tunick is an artist and close friend that I've known for about 30 years. Uh, we met in New York back in 1992 when I was a fashion designer, and a Paper Magazine wanted to do a feature on me, and he was freelancing. He had just finished his school of visual arts, and was looking to establish himself as an artist. But on the side, he was doing some work for paper. We met in his apartment on St. Mark's Place, mm. this like tiny, tiny studio that had like a bathtub in the kitchen. <laughs> and he said, okay. <laughs> Sounds like an average Tel Aviv apartment. You know what? Yes, but the bathtub was really, really cool. <laughs> <laughs> it was about the half the size of the place. And of course, like, you know, fire escape where we could actually like go out and get some fresh air. Wow. And he's nice. like, hey, let me take a, you know, a picture of you, for the, you know, for, the, for the magazine. He had me like wear some of my clothing. He had me bite an apple and put it into and stick a fork into it and then bite on the fork. And that was a picture that he, you know, that he chose, you know, for, or paper chose for the feature. And as we were going through the session, you know, he understood that I was Jewish. He let me know how, that he was Jewish. And um, we kind of like connected on that level, just hearing about our backgrounds and he said, you know what, I'm not really a commercial photographer. I'm an artist. Let me show you what I'm doing. And he took out some you know, early photos of his, mm -hmm. which were basically photographing individual portraits on the streets of New York, usually with some crazy props and naked. And I looked at it and I was like, wow, how the hell are you doing this? This is completely cool and insane. And he said, you know what, you want to help me? I'm like, sure. So I would actually you know, help him on some of these you know, shoots that he would do. We'd like, you know, guerrilla style. Finally. Were they underground? Like, were they legal? Were they? Oh, it's completely illegal. Oh, that's awesome. How yeah. so? <laughs> How so? I, I believe, you know, public nudity, you know, is mm. just not something which yeah. is, you know. In New know, York, maybe. In a lot. Uh, not, not downtown New York? Not, not Back then, you know, it wasn't allowed. Today, of course, it's very different. No, but he would, you know. Today, if you walk down New York clothes, people look at you weird. He would say, okay, meet me five o'clock in the morning. You know, and sometimes we'd shoot socialites that want to be 
you know, in his photos, he would literally just walk around the city and just like stop people and say, hey, do you want to pose for me? And he had the gift of gab. He could convince anyone, you know, to pose for himself. So um, on I on the spot they would strip naked. No, on the spot he would you know talk to someone, tell them who he is, what you know, show some pictures, and people were like yeah, I do it. So I remember like he did Tatiana von Furstenberg, the daughter of you know, Diane von Furstenberg. I was like, how the hell did you get her? Who who is who is? D- um, Diane von Furstenberg, Barry Diller's wife. If, you, if that name rings a bell. Nope. No. Is this uh, like uh, is this like New York n- intelligentsia? N- New York socialite, like- but also you know very very famous fashion designer, very oh, famous okay. you know billionaire. Okay. So like, you know, their daughter and, you know, all kinds of like, you know, B-level celebrities like in New York. Yeah. And literally like five o'clock in the morning, we get together, you know, right when it starts to getting to get light, he would say, okay, disrobe, Ari, hold the clothing, look out for the police, snap, snap, snap. And, you know, police would come, we'd run and that was it. Did they ever come after him? I mean, they knew eventually who took the photo because you'd probably publish them or whatever. Did they ever try and, you know, track him down? Um, yes. But like from a different point in his career. So this is how it kind of started, and I actually took some of the images and I used them for my fashion company. I would do what we call today a collab, where I would do like a drop of like you know 200 T-shirts with you know one artwork on it, mm-hmm. and I put them to different stores around the country, and you know they'd sell out. Uh, we we create posters, and we actually used to go around New York City at night and just on our own just like put these posters up until the mob chased us away. <laughs> So oh, actually the mob. Yeah, because you just can't put posters you know, up. You know, they're like each wall is controlled by someone. Really? We, in Tel Aviv we had like no that, idea. By the, way. the ad space on the walls is controlled by organized crime? It's New York City. Even in Tel Aviv. The garbage, you know, the walls, everything. Guys, That's in crazy. Tel Aviv, you also cannot uh, put a sign without... Uh, yeah, if you want it to stay, you got to pay... Uh, Protection to the, yeah. what, to the mafia? Yeah, or, yeah. Uh, in so Tel Aviv. Not, yes. It's not like organized. It's not, organi- it's not is, organized. It's organized like, in terms of they'll organize. Yeah. They'll come together and they'll hurt you if you don't. You know. yeah, yeah, it's not. No, like, I mean, uh, if you keep doing that, you'll you'll be in trouble. They wow. will hurt you. It's kind of ironic, though, to put a, a photo of a nudist on a T-shirt. Well, it's not a nudist. I mean, first of all, it's artwork. Well, yeah, but then, I'm and saying the, like and the uh, people that are doing it, you know, they're not people that normally, you know, want to be naked. Yeah. For most people, it's the first time they're doing it. It's transformative. They want to be part of an art process. Wow. So, I mean, it's, it's definitely not about, you know, nudism at all. And so, how, how, what is that process like for those people? I mean, you had like front row seats to it. So, I mean, so, um, how would he convince them and how like, so this, this is 92, 93 when we worked together. Yeah. And yeah, you know, part of my you know, fashion company was, he wasn't the only artist. You know, I decided to work with a whole slew of artists, uh-huh. but Spencer took up so much of my attention because, you know, he was really hundred percent in it. He needed my help. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point, you know, he, during, during that period, he took a trip to Israel mm-hmm. um, it, it turns out that he's got family here. Mm-hmm. His um, aunt, I guess in college, came here to study, met an Israeli, got married, have kids. So he's got like, you know, first cousins here. And I guess throughout his life, he's traveled to Israel. And um, when his grandparents, you know, retired, they moved to Netanya to the Four Seasons. And then eventually when his father retired, he also moved to Israel. So he's had this draw of coming to Israel. Every time he'd come to Israel, he'd actually do some photos here. This is in the early 90s, but, you know, no one knew about it. He wasn't known. So he showed me some pictures, and he came back that he took actually in Jerusalem, in the Via Dolorosa. I was like, "Oh my God, how did you do that? That's inc- that's insane." And um, and it was so we kept you know this friendship. Eventually, my fashion company kind of blew up, and I started traveling you know, outside the U.S., living in Paris and Milan. And eventually, his career you know kind of like blew up. He actually went from doing these individual portraits to doing what he calls group installations. And the first group ones he did 
were around the same time that you had, unfortunately, the first intifada in Israel. And there were these you know, bus bombings. And his reaction... First or second? I think it was the, no, the first the one. first was like 89. 89 to when? So this... Till 89. You're talking to early 2000s? So it's the second intifada. In early 2000. Yeah. So that's when he started to do more like you know, these groups. He went from individuals. He started off like in New York. And then he went across the United States. He actually, there's two documentaries about him. One is called Naked States, where he traveled all, over, all around the U.S. and did an installation, individual one, you know, in, every, you know, in, every, um, you know, in every state. And he also did another one called Naked World, where he traveled around the world doing it. But it started to evolve in terms of you know, mass participations mm-hmm. as a reaction to some of the bus bombings in Israel that he saw. So there he, he called them more like celebrations of life, but that was an early influence that he doesn't really talk much about. And as it started to get bigger, and um, in New York, and I guess in the late 90s and the early 2000s, when Rudolph Giuliani was the mayor, he started to really clean up and you know, change the whole fabric of the city. And that's the time when they start to target Spencer and arrest him. Every time he tried to do an installation, he'd get arrested. And it happened so often that eventually you know, he got you know, good legal representation and it became kind of like one of these marquee cases about um, freedom of speech through the First Amendment. And it went to the Supreme Court, and he actually won that his work is actually considered, you know, art. And it's something which is, you know, allowed, even though it's you no know, nude, you know, on the streets of America. That's but so interesting. from that point, he just started to travel the world, and these installations, you know, grew and grew in size. And yeah, and my career changed. You know, I left from fashion to high tech. I moved from New York, you know, to Israel, then to Seattle, and to Philadelphia, and then back to Israel. But we've always stayed in touch. And when I came back to Israel in 2007, you know, I joined the board of the Tel Aviv Museum of Art, which was a very kind of like surreal opportunity. How come? Because you were an art collector or? Um, kind of, yeah. My, my family were original founders of the, of the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. Ah, okay. And um, yeah, my great, great, great aunt, she actually lived inside the museum. Her name was Charlotte Bergman. She had her own private house. Right, and you can visit that house today, right? It's, uh, and unfortunately not. Um, you could the, though. Yeah. in certain it's really restricted i mean the yeah israel museum for example when spencer was here and we had a press conference in jerusalem we actually scheduled to have a tour of the museum and to visit the house and the last minute the, the museum denied us entrance to the house right. once every few years i think they open it for like one day that house in the I perimeter th- or something yeah, you're talking about the bite and that, that yeah, was but that was many years ago since then they really haven't opened it how come we so I, I think that there's probably some suspicious activities around the house that the museum doesn't want the public to have access to it because you now they've denied me access you know, with Spencer. And um, you're actually and, descendant. Yes. And um, they've also, my, my parents came to visit you know, back um, for Shavuot and we wanted to visit the house and they denied us an what entrance. What kind of suspicious activity? What do you mean? Um, I, 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 I can't say you know, with certainty, but she had a very, very, very special art collection that today uh. is probably worth, you know, the hundreds of millions of dollars in the museum, you know, took over the entire state. Well, how did that happen? I mean, is there no legal battle going on? I mean, she must did, have inherited did she left it. it, leave it to the museum? Uh, you know, it's, it's a question mark. Yeah, I, I don't know. Wow. I, 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 what I do know, because, you know, I learned everything about art, you know, through my aunt and my years coming to Israel when I lived here from 97 to 2001, I visit her regularly. The art were her children. You know, she was unfortunately un- unable to you know, conceive any, ch- any children. She had many miscarriages, and she threw her love into collecting art and to Zionism and to supporting the museum. Tell us her name again, because... Uh, Charlotte Bergman. Charlotte Bergman. She was a real Renaissance woman. She died at the age of 99, lived mm-hmm. in the museum for about 30 years. And I think, you know, she really wanted the house to be open to the public. Mm-hmm. She wanted, you know, 
it, she didn't want to keep it, you know, the best secret in Israel. So from that perspective, and now it's owned by the state. I mean, the Israel Museum owns it. It's actually built inside the museum. So it's at a certain point she was like a prisoner living inside the Israel Museum. But it's probably the best asset the museum has. And from my perspective, it should be open to the public. Everyone in Israel should have the opportunity to see Who it. Who owns the museum? This, the city of Jerusalem or? I, I don't know the legal structure, okay. but I, I assume. That there's so you came to be at the board? The board of the Tel Aviv Museum of Art. Yeah. And this was, I guess, based upon you know, my experience you know, in, in the art world. You know, from my aunt, from artists like Spencer Tunuk, I built relationships with. And at the time, um, Mati Omer was running the museum. He was a real, I'd say, um, a, a real important figure in the Israeli you know, art world. In terms of super scholar, uh, he, he published maybe 10 to 20 books a year. He ran the art department at Tel Aviv University. He ran the museum as well as the gallery at the university. Many people today who work you know, in the art field, you know, they owe their knowledge you know, to Mati. So he was all in. You know, he also didn't have children. He was completely committed to you know, art. And when he met me, he felt that there was an opportunity to bring someone younger onto the, onto the board. Someone's coming from outside of Israel, other experiences, other connections to help make it you know, more interesting. So um, yeah, I was, I was glad to join. And at that point he said, you know, come to me with any interesting ideas you have. What artists do you have? What kind of exhibitions could we do? So I said, well, I've got this friend, Spencer Tunick. What do you think about doing something together in Israel? He loved the idea, was very supportive. But unfortunately, I think it was in 2008, 2009, the economic crisis hit everyone. And it just wasn't the time to, you know, to, to realize that kind of you know, vision. So he said, listen, you want to do it, you go full, you go ahead, I'll, you know, I'll support you from the museum, but you know, go make it happen. And it took me about a, f a few years to realize that. During that process, Mati Omer fell ill and eventually he passed away. So he wasn't really able to help me you know, along the way. But um, I was successful in terms of you know, accomplishing something that I had no idea was possible. You know, when I thought about you know, a large scale installation in Israel, I said, who's going to do it? Everyone here knows each other. You know? The embarrassment of seeing your teacher, mm. you know, your dentist, the guy from the Makolet. Your podcast co-host. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't want, I don't want we, to see your junk. We, I mean. knew, <laughs> we knew someone from our studies that was actually in one of the shoots. Did there we? Was, there was one. There wasn't the, the there wasn't only the one in 2011 and the, this one a month ago. There were a few. There the, were there, a bunch. There was, a, there was a, um, a secretive one that was done in 2016. Yeah. That was very That one, very, that one only had. You don't know who I'm talking about? No. We know someone. <laughs> I'll tell you after. I'm sure I know who that is then. <laughs> is it a he or a she? It's a she. Oh, then I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> well. Tattoos or no tattoos? I mean, I, no, uh, I don't know, actually. I don't know. I don't think, I, I don't think there was a close-up at any point, so I don't know if she, if she had or not. Yeah, so when I want to realize this vision, you know, I like to do things that I don't know how I'm going to do it. If I knew how to do it, then it's not challenging. It's not exciting. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, this is a cool project. Let me see if I can actually make this thing happen in Israel. And um, I actually But how did you decide to, like, to leave those apprehensions behind of like, oh, no one's going to want to do it? Well, I mean, that was, you know, that was one aspect. And I said, also, if I'm going to do it, I can't talk the talk and not walk the walk. Mm. And even though I've known Spencer for so long, I've never been interested or never had the courage to participate in one of his projects. Mm -hmm. So um, I started to do research, like, you know, like everything. I said, okay. I found out about a festival called Pashut, which is in a place called the Ashram Bimidbar, and there, you know, clothing is optional. So um, you need to actually bring a partner with you, and I didn't know anyone I could take with me. So I reached out to them. I said, listen, this is who I am. I'd love to come. I'm working on a project with Spencer Tunick. He said, oh, really? Wow, Spencer Tunick. We know him. 
sure, you could come, no problem, be our guest. So I went to this festival, and during that weekend, you know, I learned how I could shed my clothing, which was a big transformative you know, moment for me. I also understood that I don't really enjoy being naked. If, you know, maybe in some circumstances, yes, but I don't, I'm not a naturalist. It's not something which I want to do. Publicly. Publicly, of course. Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah I'm not, that doesn't really you know, do it for me, um, but I'm capable of doing it you know, for, with the, for the right reason. And after that weekend, I called Spencer. I said, Spencer, guess what? I found 500 people that are enthusiastic <laughs> to be part of, you know, and he said, what people? Tell me, where, where were you? The perfect and, storm. And I explained to him, he goes, no, 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 no. These are not the right people. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, these people want to be naked all the time. They're looking for an excuse to be naked. My art is not about that. It's about people like yourself who, who haven't done it before and are coming together individually, you know, to, to work with me to create something new and unique. Find those people. So... I actually um, worked with the IDC. There's a new media. Um, there's a new media school, I guess mm -hmm. it's called. And they had the new media lab in the communication school. They decided to do a one-year project where six students, basically using social media, created a campaign to bring Spencer Tunick to Israel. And that was kind of like a way to test to see if people would be interested in being a part of it. And I think one of the students was uh, Roni Dioni who's um, known as Roni Superstar. Mm -hmm. And the project was really successful. They built this, you know, buzz. It was the early days of Facebook. We're talking about 2010, maybe, 2009. Before it was meta. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe it was still the Facebook. I'm not yeah. even sure. Yeah. So um, it worked. Were, you know, it started to create you know, interest. The media started to pick up on it in Israel. And as the media picked up, I think uh, Roni Duani's agent got a little bit upset and she was taken out of the project and then the school kind of like canceled it. Mm. But at least I knew that, you know, from the students that there was definitely demand. And then I decided I had to raise money for it. And I thought it would be something that'd be, you know, relatively easy. You know, he's a famous artist. You can do something that's going to create, you know, world, you know, impact in terms of, you know, you know, when he does an installation, it's, it's, it's world, you know, headlines. But um, a few things happened in Israel. One, the nudism was really, really challenging. <coughs> People that privately wanted to support it didn't want to have their business, didn't want to have you know, their nonprofits, whatever could be associated with it, because they're afraid of the backlash you know, from um, the religious world. And actually, the religious parties you know, in the Knesset started to go ahead and actually jump on it, even before it actually happened. So I think Shas tried to create a law called the Spencer Tunic Law, <laughs> which basically outlawed any public nudity, whether it's just someone getting naked or if it's someone's doing it for art or for commercial purposes. It's also yeah. funny that his name is Tunic, I just realized. <laughs> right? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good pun. <laughs> so, yeah, so they, um, so, and then there was other party called Bait Yehudi, and they yeah. actually had public debates with them about it. And I couldn't understand why people were so concerned about this. It's like it's an artist. I mean, how many artists in the world that, that you know, that, that have a public audience that are famous are actually willing to come to Israel and create something special here, especially someone who actually cares and loves loves Israel. I think also, especially if it's like, you know, I, I maybe get it if the Haredim are against having like him uh, shoot people at the Western Wall or, you know, in a public space, but in the middle of the desert, or if it's not even in a, that religious of a city and it's at a time that most people aren't around, like you can find arrangements to do it. Like, you know, I, I think it's about, you know, publicity. Yeah. You know, 
it was getting you know media attention here, so they wanted to also get media attention. Just, so they yeah, jumped, jumped on this. On that, yeah. But there's other things that are probably much more important for them to spend their time on. Mm-hmm. But in terms of location, so this was a, an evolutionary process. Eventually, I decided to you know, raise the money through Kickstarter. And I w- actually, I met David Broza, who had just done a Kickstarter campaign for a Spanish album. And he was you know, successful with it. So I asked him about it. He said, well, if I could do it, then for sure Spencer Tuna could do it, who's, who's much more famous than me. And uh, it took a lot of convincing to Spencer to, you know, to do a Kickstarter campaign. He said, well, I'm asking for money. How are people going to perceive me? And if I fail, how's that going to look? And I actually had to arrange, fly to New York and arrange a meeting you know, with um, the founder of Kickstarter to kind of calm down his fears. And usually they don't meet, they don't meet people privately. So I had a connection to you know, the founder of Kickstarter. Actually, his mother and Spencer's aunt both live on Kibbutz Rivivim. <laughs> Coincidentally, uh, small world. Classic no wonder we rule story. the world. Yeah. <laughs> so um, you know, they, 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 after the meeting, Spencer was convinced that they were a serious company, serious about art. He said, "Okay, I'll do it under your name. So if it fails, you're responsible for it." So you know, I did the campaign myself. You know, and we raised one hundred seventeen thousand wow. dollars. It was the largest raise for an art project. You know, at the time. And afterwards, like artists like Marina Ranovich kind of followed our steps, and she raised you know a million dollars to build um, something that she never actually built. But you know, yet yeah. another Kickstarter uh, like investors who never got their money back and were scammed out of that. Wait, was this a similar model to the one that was just done right now, so that people who invested participated? Or so it, it was actually really different. I mean, so back then. You know, we decided when Spencer was thinking about locations in Israel, he said, okay, there's two places that interest me. He said, one is, you know, Tel Aviv, which is kind of like, you know, the heart and soul of the country today. If you're going to do something big, it's going to happen in Tel Aviv. Or he said, you know what? I'm really curious about the Dead Sea. I remember as a child kind of like going there, floating, you know, seeing on the Israeli side, you know, all the miracles of Israel, what they did with the desert, they, you know, how they have like date trees there and you have the freshwater springs of Engedi, and he had this romantic vision of the Dead Sea and how it's this, you know, amazing place, lowest place in the world on the earth that's shared between the Palestinians or Jordanians and the Israelis. We're all kind of like caretakers of it. So he wanted to explore that. So I brought him here on a scouting trip and we, you know, explored both. And, um, when we started to kind of go through, we went to the Dead Sea, we were actually taught about the environmental issues the Dead Sea were facing. We had no idea about the declining you know, water levels and how drastic you know, it was. We actually took um, the first boat that's now very popular you know, across the Dead Sea scouting locations. And there was going to be this competition in, for the new seven wonders of nature. And Israel had made the decision to have the Dead Sea as part of that. So they really worked hard to convince us, saying, if you're going to do it anywhere, choose a Dead Sea. We were working with the Megillot Regional Council, which claims to be the poorest regional council in Israel. And they said, listen, we can't give you much financial support, but we'll give you location of your choice. We'll give you, you know, permissions that you need, any the insurance, you know, just you know, basic infrastructure to actually make it happen. And um, he calculated the costs. And then we, did an, we looked at Tel Aviv, you know, and Ran Chulda, he said, you know what? I'll give you Kikar Rabin if you want. I'll give you, you know, any of the beaches. And which was nice offer, but then we start to calculate the production costs. It was quite high, and they said, "Okay, Tel Aviv, you know, you're a pretty rich municipality. How much are you willing to offer?" They didn't have any financial support for it, mm. so I said, "Okay, with those two, if I'm going to go out and have to raise money, so the pre-Kickstarter, I want to do it for something that's going to make a bigger impact." So we chose the environmental angle and the Dead Sea. 
And that kind of started, you know. That was our, what year? I mean, the installation was in 2011, but we were already scouting, you know, back in, you know, two years earlier. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it was successful? Back in 2009. It, it was extremely successful, but extremely challenging. So even though, you know, we succeeded in raising money, you know, from Kickstarter, you know, we had everything basically about, about 6,000 people registered to be a part of it. But the Megillot Council said you could only have 1,200 people. So we had to like, you know, in order to ensure that people were actually going to show up and to keep to the right number, we charged people. We charged them you know, 70 shekel, which included transportation back and forth. Because they told us, no, no, no cars. You have to take, you know, get, arrange for buses to bring people there. And of course, everyone that, takes, that, that participates in Spencer's works actually gets an image afterwards. So for 70 shekel, people got transportation and they also got you know, a work of art. So yeah, we, we had 1,200 people that came, about a 10% of them or people that flew in from around the world just want to be a part of this. So, And um, about two weeks beforehand, the Megillo Regional Council canceled everything. They, uh, right when I'm about to realize like this what? amazing project I'm working on for years, you know, it's something I'm going to really enjoy and be proud of. All Decades of a sudden, at this point, no? I mean, it sounds I mean, like you were working on it since like... I, since um, I started, we started you know, planning it in 2008. Yeah, but, but, but you had started thinking about this and trying. I mean, you were telling, you were saying that you guys had been trying already for a while. Like, I mean, we, we go back mu- thirty. When you were on the board of the Museum of Tel Aviv. Yeah, so that's that's like in two thousand and eight when we first started. Ah, okay. okay, and then we and we actually did it in two thousand eleven. So okay. there was like a three year. So you know, why did time they period. cancel? Because of pressure from the Haredim. So when I was, you know, when I, when I sat with the mayor, I mean, the former mayor, you know, of Megillot, you know, I, I asked him and said. I just want to make sure before I go out there and I publicly try to raise money that no matter what, this is going to happen. He goes, no, we're secular here. We hate the religious. That's not going to you know, hold us back at all. Well, two weeks, you know, two weeks before the installation, after everything's a go, the artist is ready to fly into the country. We've got no, no location. Now, the Dead Sea wow. is not a simple place. I'll, t- I'll tell you what happened. You can't just say, okay, great. I'll pick another location. There are no locations. The entire northern part of the Dead Sea is almost completely closed off to people because of sinkholes today. You only have a few, you know, beaches that you know they're available, and then the southern. It's also part, under military, right? It's a sea. No, it's it's not it's not, it's not the military thing. It's it's literally the fact that because of the sinkholes, mm-hmm. you actually cannot get to the water. Mm-hmm. So you have when you go when you drive down from Jerusalem, you have like Somet Lido, which is close to Kibbutz Kalia. You have three public beaches there, which is uh, Neve Midbar, Binkini, you know, and Kalia. And they're not the most beautiful beaches at all. But you know, you have access there, and, you know, and you pay for that access. And then when you come along, you have Mitsuke Dorgot, which is not a public beach. You know, it's, it's a raw beach. And you, know, you can't bring 1,200 people down there to do an installation to be too dangerous. And then you had a place called Mineral Beach, and which was by uh, Mitzbe Shalem. And you know, that was the location that, you know, that we chose. But then afterwards, you get to Engedi. And the Engedi, there was a promenade back then, and there was a beach area. And then you continue, continue past Masada. There's a c- commercial spa. And then that's it. You're done. When you get to the hotels, that's not really the Dead Sea. All that water is kind of pumped in or stolen from the northern basin of the Dead Sea. Right. And everything there is it's artificial. The, it's the southern uh, lake. It's, it's a reservoir for the Dead Sea factories. Yeah. 
And that exists for the Dead Sea's business. And because it existed, the government partnered with them and decided to build the tourism infrastructure around there. Mm -hmm. So most, and that's not a location you now that you'd want to shoot because it's not really the Dead Sea. Just in a in a short, brief um, sentence, it was once an, an entire sea until right, I guess, 1979 or something. And it dried mainly because uh, of um, Jordan, Syria blocking water, water, uh, I don't know, sources to the Jordan River and also Israel blocking, taking water from the Kinneret, thus uh, less water f flooded to, to the Dead Sea and made it yeah, smaller. I mean, I mean, that's definitely part of it. But at the end of the day, you know, water evaporates. And, you know, and it comes back in the form of rain. Yeah. So that rain is, you know, is brought back in. But because water is so valuable in Israel, mm -hmm. you know, going back then and to even today. You and know, in with Syria our, with and, the, with, and with their neighbors. So people siphon the, you know, there's a water shortage. Mm -hmm. So they decided, you know, actually we decided to also dam, you know, the Jordan River to keep everything in the Kinneret, which is our you know, water reservoir. Mm -hmm. Had we not done that, we wouldn't have had a country. You know, water is life. So it was a decision. No one really knew how that would affect ourselves today. So right. one of the things that people didn't know about were sinkholes. So you figure, okay, there's less water, that's fine. But over time, the ground became unsafe and unstable and basically opened up. And once it opens up, it's almost like an earthquake. Once it opens up, it can't be refilled. You just, you're done. So Mineral Beach, which was the location that we chose in 2011, today doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, the entire thing collapsed into a sinkhole. Um, Engedi Beach doesn't exist at all. The, the road 90 that passes through Engedi completely opened up because of a sinkhole. Now there's a bypass road. So, I mean, the ramifications we're, you know, we're seeing every day. And it's not just on the Israeli side, you know, even on the Jordanian side as well. But getting back to Migilot. Mm -hmm. um, How did you solve the... So they canceled two weeks ahead. Two weeks ahead. And they went publicly against us saying that we're pulling out because this is this art installation is no longer about the environment it's about it's about religion which was never the case at all we had they no claimed that they claimed that yeah going behind your back meaning they never behind their back i mean they literally you know you know you know pulled out they didn't tell us anything um i went down there immediately i drove down because i couldn't get, the, couldn't get it on the phone i know what to do and remember i collected one hundred seventeen thousand dollars on kickstarter in my name if it fails i'm responsible for it and the last thing I want to do is take people's money and not give them what I promised. So I went down with a friend and we recorded the conversation. And we understood that you know, the mayor was bribed to basically you know, pull out. Um, Shas, who, clo who, who at that time ran the Ministry of Interior, basically, I don't know what they said, but probably said, listen, you've got a lot of workers here you know, that are non-Israeli, foreign workers. If you, do, if you don't want to lose them, you want to keep your funding, you need to pull out this project. So they pulled out, and um, I didn't back down. I spent when Spencer arrived. It was the most stressful period of my life. I had a team of Spencer and about seven other people that came down you know, for this installation. Everyone thinks it's about to happen. In the meantime, I've got no location. Did you tell Spencer about all that, or did you like? I I, I told him, but I said no. I'll figure it out. Don't worry. Like yeah, you know, you know, he's an artist. Just wants to create his art. So yeah, you know, yeah. when he comes here, I mean, he's he gets into this, this zone. And it's all about, you know, you know, creating the most amazing, you know, experience, you know, and art. Mm -hmm. And to come here and find out there's no location, you know, and 
yeah, I was plotting out all kinds of places that we could do it, you know, because I promised that would happen. So I had to at least, you know, in the minimum, try to do something. And um, I hired a very expensive lawyer who was very politically connected, and we threatened to sue the Megillo Council and take this case publicly up to the Supreme Court. Literally, but Dakanti Shim, this is, um, the installation took place, you know, on a Saturday morning. Friday, maybe two hours before Shabbat, we got the okay from Migilot that they're going to give us the original location. Wow. But I have to pay for it personally, and we have to make sure that we f- vacate the, the location by 8 a.m. So, wow. uh, so I, I paid with my credit card. You know, I got there. I'm, I'm a SORT, so I don't work on Shabbat. So I got, to, I got there before Shabbat. I basically paid, stayed there, stayed there slept, slept, waited for everyone to show up, and just kind of like worked along that worked. I, I basically was there with responsive for support, but I gave up all my responsibilities to other people to actually have them run the production. But wow. it was, it was, you know, it was terrifying. You know, had that not happened, we were going to, you know, probably go to that time the Angeti Beach, and at least just have everyone go in the water and have Spencer take a picture. It wouldn't have been the nicest picture. It would have been artistic because we didn't have much time to work with, but at least to actually do it. Yeah, you know, by hook or by crook, this was going to happen. And the fact that it happened was just a real, you know, godsend, you know, in terms of for Israel. I mean, the media attention was, you know, was spectacular. You had an artist that no one ever knew that he was Jewish. He never actually identified being Jewish with his work, finally opened up about that, said some of the most amazing things to the media about how incredible Israel is. It's the only place in the Middle East that can actually create this kind of work. Mm-hmm. And um, I think, you know, we did this, you know, an incredible job in terms of, you know, promoting and making people aware of the Dead Sea and then and some of the issues it was facing and helped it become today recognized as the eighth wonder of nature, <laughs> not the seventh, but it really, this, this got, put it on the map in, in a meaningful thus, way. your Dead Sea obsession commenced. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm very naive in the things that I do and love, and I assume that if I brought 1,200 people down to the Dead Sea for the most incredible experience of their life and... They understood that we're here because you know we're trying to you know raise an environmental awareness that they would you know go home and maybe think about it and do something and you know i was surprised i'm not israeli i didn't grow up here i figured all these israelis probably would care about it more than me and people loved it they'll t- if you meet anyone today who's been a part of an installation they'll say how it's one of the most important things in their life but no one took on the mantle of actually helping the dead sea and you know i thought wow if i fought shas if I fought the Knesset and all these evil powers in the country, Dead Sea factories, and I succeeded in actually making this happen and making this incredible awareness, maybe I could you know, continue and do some more work that would actually help the Dead Sea you know, cause people to take action. So yeah, it's an obsession which I haven't succeeded with. You know, it's been a failure to some degree because you know, as much as that project succeeded, to me it failed because no one else that I thought that it's more I thought there'd be people there and there are amazing people there that are much more capable than me that would start some kind of activity and, and nothing happened. So let's maybe get back to the environmental issue. Can you tell us why you're, you're, you're fighting for the Dead Sea so vigilantly and why you, what you believe needs to be done there and why? So it's really, it's something which has happened. You know, sometimes the most amazing things in life, you know, they're coincidences. So I, I wasn't aware of the Dead Sea in terms of from the environmental issues until I went down with Spencer. And if I think about, you know, Israel and about our responsibility, you know, in the, in the greater world, we don't own the Dead Sea. The Jordanians don't own it. The Palestinians don't own it. You know, we're collectively caretakers of a very, very special, unique place. 
And why can't we, at least on the Israeli side, do something to preserve it, you know, for our generation and for future generations to come? Like what? So, um, it's, um, it's a good question. So I thought that, you know, the solution would require investment, not just locally, would actually, you know, require investment, you know, globally. And I thought, you know, I connected 1,200 people. How could I continue with that idea and connect more and more people to the Dead Sea? I mean, it's very well known. I mean, everyone knows the Dead Sea, thanks to especially the Israelis and all the malls around the world selling Dead Sea products. But people believe the Dead Sea minerals are good for you. So you have lots of commerce companies out there, you know, the biggest one being Ahava, that are marketing using the Dead Sea material, the Dead Sea name, yet they're not actually giving anything back to the Dead Sea. And rather than actually, you know, you know there's problem, there's solution, but there's also interim steps. So why not, you know, have industry who's benefiting from it take a more active stance and actually return stuff back to the Dead Sea? So I started um, a company doing Dead Sea products as well for a little while. It was called Naked Sea Salt, and it was meant to be a social enterprise, an e-brand, e-commerce only, where I, ha I actually produced um, table salt in different flavors, you know, from the Dead Sea. I did it. I, I, I raised the money through Kickstarter, and it was also very successful. The idea was, you know, through my company, I was actually giving a percentage of the money that we earned back to the Arava Institute, which had like the Transboundary Water Center. There's an expert there called Clive Lipkin who focuses on the Dead Sea and sinkholes. The idea was to take that money, invest it in research, create more documentation. Because if you go online and you try to find any information about the Dead Sea, it's all going to be commerce. It's all going to be propaganda. Nothing out there really tells you what's actually happening there at all. So I wanted to start to create that channel. So we started to you know, produce videos and you know, put out educational material. And with each bottle of salt, there was information that was delivered with it about the Dead Sea. Because if you're going to put it into, in your food and ingest it in your body, you're going to create that you know, connection with it. So that was my vision for this company. And uh, I left my job in high tech to establish it. And I was hoping to inspire the other Dead Sea product companies to kind of follow suit, to take a better responsibility. You were so naive. I was naive and <laughs> I failed. <laughs> After two years, I realized that I'm not even getting close to replacing my high-tech you know, salary and I can't afford to do this. You know, if I was 20 years younger, living in my parents' basement, it'd been a cool business. But at that point in life, you know, I couldn't make it happen. And you know, e-commerce is complicated. Acquiring customers is expensive and it, it didn't work. And it's funny. Um, so a few years ago, I, I spoke at uh, Fuck Up Nights mm -hmm. in English. Uh, in Tel Aviv, and you're supposed to talk about a failure. So I wanted to talk about Spencer Tunick and the Dead Sea in 2011, which I thought was a failure because I didn't inspire anyone to actually do anything about the Dead Sea. I said, no, no, you can't talk about that. That's a success. <laughs> okay. They said, find another angle. I'm like, oh, yeah, right. I had this like salt company that failed. Perfect. Yeah. So I actually you know, spoke about you know, Spencer Tunick in 2011 through the salt company, and the person who was working with me you know, from the fuck up nights and was giving me advice on how to speak and the format. He said, you know what? You're still really passionate about the Dead Sea. You should think about what you want to do next. And I said, oh God. <laughs> yeah, I was kind of happy not doing much. You know, not doing much in terms of, you know, I, I brought Spencer back in 2016. We did an installation in Mitsuge Dorgot in the sinkholes. We got lots of you know, world attention about that. Again, tension, awareness. Nothing happened. Mm -hmm. Then I helped a friend of mine establish a nonprofit called the Dead Sea Revival Project. 
Uh, his name is Noam Bedin, and he was the original um, founder of the um, in Stay Rote. There's like um, there's like a media center that he st- they established in Stay Rote when they were getting pounded by like you know, rockets. And um, he he as a photojournalist, he kind of discovered the Dead Sea on this boat that we spoke about earlier, and became super passionate about it, just documenting and trying to share that with the world. So I helped him establish this you now Amuta called the Dead Sea Revival Project. And you know t- today, for example, he's in on a speaking trip in the U.S. talking on college campuses about the Dead Sea and the environment. So, and I was the ha- museum. So yeah, I'm about to get to that. Okay. So um, so I was happy saying, you know what? I haven't solved the Dead Sea. Okay, I, it's it's it was really too big of a problem for me to figure out. Yeah, you know, I thought I've tried all kinds of angles. It's so difficult because of the politics that are there, and you know, it's it's it's, it's very challenging. I said, well, it's not my job to save it. But, you know, maybe, you know, what else could I do? So fuck up nights. And I said, okay, with Noam, you know, he's, he's out there. He's documenting it. He's speaking about it. He's getting more awareness. I'm behind the Amuta. That's great. I could focus on my Tel Aviv life, my kids, my job. And then fuck up nights came, and they kind of planted the seed in my head. I said, shit, what, what am I going to do? So I, at night, you know, I couldn't sleep. And I, a couple of days later, I had this, like, kind of, like, epiphany saying, well, you know what? I really love art. I'm an, I'm an art collector. I work with artists. There's nothing cultural to Dead Sea at all. In fact, people complain of how boring it is, well, by the hotels especially. And I said, well, may, and there's also no visitor center. When you go down to the Dead Sea, there's no starting point, there's no ending point. You're kind of like on your own. There's no information available at all. I said, you know what? Why can't I do something that will be culturally you know, significant and put the Dead Sea on the map for now, you know, and for future generations. And I thought about um, Frank Gehry, the architect, mm-hmm. who designed this incredible museum in a place called Bilboa, Spain. I had never heard of Bilboa before in my life. If I would think of the cities in Spain that I want to visit, Bilboa was never on the, yeah, in my consideration. But because of this incredible architectural masterpiece, not just me, but people all over the world became aware of Bilboa and actually traveled there to actually see the museum and visit inside. I said the Dead Sea, even though it's dying, you know, it's not dead. Yeah, I'm not a doctor. You know, I can't save it, but I could help preserve it, and I could do that through art. So if something that you love is, you know, is changing, why not create something that will represent it you know, forever? So I thought about the idea of creating not just a museum, an architectural masterpiece, something that people all over the world will wake up and pay attention to and actually want to come and visit. A sculpture by itself. Exactly. In the desert. Which, you know, which is today, there's architectural tourism. You know, people travel all over the world to see just mm-hmm. incredible buildings. So doesn't the Dead Sea deserve that? And not the Dead Sea where the hotels are, but, you know, the Dead Sea kind of, you know, proper. So I, I thought of, you know, locations for it. And, of course, this is a big idea. And even bigger than bringing Spencer Tunic to Israel. Yeah. And that I had no idea how I was going to do. It took me three years to eventually make it happen. This is going to take me, you know, quite a bit longer. You know, to build a museum, first of all, you need to have a land. So I started to say, okay, you know, where could I actually, you know, build it? So I, you know, spoke again to the regional councils, to the Megillot Council, to the Tamar Council. And everyone's like, yes, yes, yes. But, you know, in Israel, people say yes, and then they do the opposite. And <laughs> there's no way that, you know, I'm... It's so stupid, though, because it's, it's in their interest. Yeah. It, it, it is and it isn't, you know, like... The Megillot Council, the Megillot Regional Council, sits on you know pre sixty seven land, and you know they don't have much of a budget itself, so they're dependent upon the government. 
Yeah. And it's Hamar Regional Council, who does who sits on Israeli proper land. They're the richest regional council in the country, and they've been exploring the Dead Sea for so long. Mm-hmm. They actually, you know, do have you know the capabilities of doing it. But when they see a nice Jewish boy, an American like me, they see a friar. They say, you know what? Okay, let him go out and you know and figure it out, and then we'll exploit him you know, later on. Also, and, they might be influenced by the lobbyists and by the the owners of the businesses. And uh, well, I mean, they would benefit greatly from it. So, I mean, that's something which is positive. Actually, I, from what I understand from the hotels in the Dead Sea, they're so frustrated with the Tamar Regional Council, they want to actually cede and you know, go to another council. And what about the edges of Arad? That wasn't an option. So. So I, I was thinking, you know, proper, and I was thinking, you know, maybe like, you know, by Engedi. Mm-hmm. The truth is, like, you know, the kibbutzim that are there, that in some way, you know, they're today they're elitist places. I can't just go to kibbutz and become a member. Mm-hmm. You know, I could be a resident there, but if I'm going to build a museum, you know, by Engedi, who's going to benefit from it? It's the landowners. It's you know, it's the kibbutz members. Well, then they should be funding it. Why would I go out and raise money for something that's going to you know, benefit them? We should be doing it together. They should be putting some skin in the game. And I couldn't find any real partners at the Dead Sea itself. And sometimes before you do something big, you do something small. You see how people act in something small? And um, I decided, you know, the museum's going to take years. Let me make a first step. And I created the DeadSeaMuseum.com, which is actually a virtual museum, which I had architects design. Um, Newman Heiner Associates were just incredible architects. You know, they came up with the vision, you know, of the of the building, and the interior for the internet. You know, it's floating in the middle of the Dead Sea, and I had to then now create an exhibition. So how do I, so how do I get content? I established um, the world's first international photo competition for the Dead Sea, which we launched on the beginning of Corona on Earth Day, um, back in 2020, and um, we had about 15,000 photos submitted. Wow. From about you know three and a half thousand photographers spanning forty countries around the world, including Jordan, Bahrain, a lot of the Arab countries, and I put together a jury of judges, including Spencer Tunick, and uh, Casey Kelbo, and Karen Bargill, and Noam Bedin, and we used a platform called Guru Shots, which is uh, you know, an Israeli startup, which is amazing, and um, now I had this incredible material to put. Yeah, you know, we chose forty works that would be an actual exhibition. And the idea was to have a physical and a virtual one. Mm-hmm. So the physical one was going to be actually by the minus 430 gallery near Kibbutz Kalia by Kalia Beach. And uh, it was a cooperation project between the Tamar Regional Council and the uh, uh, Megillot Regional Councils. Both were putting in a little bit of budget. I was raising most of the money. Yeah, it was still very much like you know, bare bones, you know, grassroots. And um, it came to the time of signing a contract. And the Tamar Regional Council said, we want you to sign a clause that gives us exclusive rights to the images from the exhibition that we could use for our marketing purposes. I said, guys, these are artists. I have the rights to show their work in an exhibition. We could market their images in connection with the competition, in connection with the exhibition. I can't even legally sign this, and this is exploitive. And they refused to back down. And to me, that was really just like you know, an eye-opening moment saying, wow. For 40,000 shekel, they were contributing. This is how they act. So I canceled it. They were shocked. They said, I'm not going to have an exhibition. Forget it. And then I kind of like searched for a new location. And someone suggested Arad. I went to a woman called Anna Sandler, who was running the tourism for Arad. And she's like, yeah, this is great. I'd love to have it. Let me connect you with the Matnas Arad, which is their cultural center. 
There's a guy there called Oren, Oren Amit, who's running the cultural program. And he just said, yes. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, yeah, let's do it. And that was it. And I kind of felt like, you know, yeah, like then when, when, yeah, in the biblical times, yeah, when God decided to give the Torah to, you know, to the nations of the world, and everyone says, well, what's in it for me? Then they came to the Jewish nation. They said, well, of course, now seven ishma. That's all I needed for my ride was just an answer like yes. And I worked with them. Yeah, I raised the money, got sponsorship, and we, and we put together an incredible exhibition. And it was kind of like this, I said, like this religious experience for me because I never thought of Arad. Even though, personally, when I first came to Israel in 1997, I actually came to a program in Arad called Wujis, which was stood for the World Union of Jewish Students. I learned Hebrew there. I absorbed the culture. I traveled around. My first week there, I met you know, my future wife. And uh, you know, our, our first son was actually born in Seattle. And, uh, but conceived in Arad. No, <laughs> but yeah, the love started in Arad. Oh, okay. <laughs> and uh, no, he was born in Seattle, and unfortunately, he was born with asthma. And literally, yeah, you know, we named him Arad, and the best place in the world for him is actually Arad. And I told him we came back to Israel in 2007. I took him to Arad, and I said, Arad, this is your city. One day you're going to come here, return to its glory. So it was just so so funny to be there years later, having an opening reception at the Matnas. My son Arad with me, with the mayor talking together, and. Yeah, we kind of rebranded Arad. I didn't realize Arad is actually the natural gateway to the Dead Sea. It's also, guys, one of the cities in Israel of the worst um, image, I guess, worst, uh, I don't know, public conception in Israel. Yeah, I was just yeah. telling you before the show that I'm allergic, quote-unquote, mm -hmm. to Arad because many of the people in uh, the army, they pass through, the, in the Nachal Brigade, mm -hmm. they pass through Arad because the Nachal Brigade uh, training base, the basic training base is right next to Arad. Mm, so okay. a lot of people have like traumatic <laughs> memories of Arad because yeah. it's, it's the sun, it's the base, it's the city where they go through on Sunday on the way back to the military. Uh, but the truth is, I've heard amazing things in, in recent years about Arad and about yeah. kind of the cultural revival that's happening there. Yeah. And it, it's a, really really special beautiful city it's the first israeli city that was completely planned from scratch Correct. yeah which was, makes it like really well organized well planned the, the best air citizen. quality you know, in the yeah. country one of the best air qualities in but, the world but uh, haredi settlements loads of problems with haredis there um you know what no i mean there are haredim there and you know 10 years ago there was no haredim at the dead sea at all and they made such problems for us for the installation. In Arad, there is a population, mm -hmm. and they didn't interfere at all. They were very, very respectful about it. This was something that was done privately for art. Of course, they weren't maybe happy with it, but they didn't create any problems at all. And it was like a walk in the park for us. So we don't have it. much time. Where is the museum standing as I'm, of today? So I've, I've told so many stories. And... <laughs> The museum, well, first of all, it's not standing yet. It's, you know, it lives in the virtual space, so the deadseamuseum.com. You know, now we have an, actually an, an exhibition of Spencer Tunick's works from 2011, 2012, and 2016 in the virtual museum, and it's gonna be there for six months. Um, we had a Head Start campaign, which, by the way, people could still contribute to. Mm -hmm. It's still ongoing. We'll leave it link, guys. But um, through the money that I've raised in the Head Start campaign, that enabled me to bring Spencer Tunick back to do another installation in Israel, which we did in Arad, by the actual site we want, we planned to build the museum. So not only was this exhibition that we did so successful, the partnership with the mayor and the city really strengthened, and the mayor wanted to bring Spencer Tunick here. 
So he was 100% behind it, made sure it happened. And um, I think the media coverage we got this time was even greater than we had, you know, 10 years ago. So, you know, CNN, BBC, New York Post, I mean, every media outlet in Israel, but, you know, it went Associated Press, you know, went, you know, worldwide. And I was able to raise some more money to actually pay the architects to create design-specific plans for the museum in Arad. So today, I'm much more further along than I was, you know, a few years ago. You have a, yeah. an actual plot that you're... Yeah, the, um, the museum I mean, the city has allocated 20 to do, 22 dunam of land, which is about five and a half acres. Which is pretty amazing. Which is, it's a, it's a nice you know, piece of land. You could see in the background the Dead Sea. Mm-hmm. It's right by the desert edge. And Arad is reestablishing itself as this like eco-tourism city. People are really tired of these like concrete jungles. And especially COVID, things change. Those types of big hotels of the Dead Sea. Mm-hmm. You know, they yearn for a better experience in nature. So glamping is becoming very big now and you know, the whole desert experience and like hiking and biking around there. So Arad has this, this, this strategic advantage in terms of the landscape to take advantage of it. Uh, even uh, the latest Midburn was, you know, held, you know, by, mm-hmm. uh, by, you know, by Arad. So there's definitely this, you know, return and love of the desert. So it's a great location for it. And I've got to kind of, you know, figure out how I got there and raise money. So you have I mean, the land, you have the plans. I have, the, I have the, the land, I've got the designs, we're finalizing the budget, and then I have to go out and professionally you know, raise the money with the city. Right. It's not going to be a, a personal museum, it's going to be you know, a public museum that uh, my Amuta, the Dead Sea Revival Project, you know, will operate. Uh, I, my dream is to leave high tech, to focus 100% you know, on art and on establishing this museum and running it to the point of bringing a million visitors a year. Yeah, wow. I, 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 that's amazing. I think it has this huge potential. Huge potential. How, how much will it cost? To I mean, build the, 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 early, the early estimates are about $50 million, but it's, you know, it's, still, it's, it's still very early. I, mean, I, need I can to do it for you for 25. No <laughs> problem. <laughs> Let's talk after this. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so, what's, what's scary about museums, though, is that you, know, you have this budget to build it, and it takes you know, a lot of fundraising, a long time, and then you want to operate it, and you can't get an audience. And then, like you know, and then you're you're bleeding cash. You need to then rely upon the public, you know, to kind of subsidize it. So I came up with a very unique you know, business plan, where I need to raise money to build it 100%. But I'm not going to be a museum like the Tel Aviv Museum of Art or the Israel Museum. Those museums are incredible. They exist for a certain purpose. They're collecting museums. They cover a range of you know items, and you know collectibles. I want to focus on experience, and uh, architecture first. Second is in terms of the art. It's all going to be immersive, experiential digital art. Something where you come in and the work that will be shown will be related to the Dead Sea and the environment. So it's going to be commissioned from artists. The museum will own those videos. But, you know, we're going to be talking about maybe every year there'll be one or two exhibitions. And that and that videos could actually be shared with other museums around the world. I've partnered with um, an organization called Super Blue which is a, um, an offshoot of the Pace Gallery, one of the biggest galleries in the world. They represent um, Israeli artists named Michal Rovner, international artists like Team Labs, and they've created a center now in, um, in Miami, another one in London, and they're opening these types of centers around the world. Um, Van Gogh Live is a poor example of what immersive experiential art you know, looks like, but that's been playing all over the world you know, for years now. So I think it's something which is like the wave of the future, there's a Yo-Yo Kurosawa event um, exhibition going on now at the Tel Aviv Museum of Art, and people are lining up. It's sold out. They love yeah. that kind of that kind of experience. So that's an idea in terms of the art. Then we have the landscape, you know, the Twenty Dunes of Land, the, uh, the desert. 
The last aspect is going to be a balloon, a tandem balloon that will take you up in the air, and give you the best you know, view of the desert and the Dead Sea. And of course, and of course there's going to be an amphitheater you know, there's, you know, for the city. There's going to be a restaurant. And you know, that, that's the vision, that anyone that's going to kind of pass through the Dead Sea is going to want to start or finish a journey there. Wow. Very cool. That's awesome. Very cool. Got goosebumps thinking about it. No, yeah. it really is. Yeah. It, it's, a, it's an amazing idea, not just for Arad, but for Israel in general. I mean, it has like so many like, you know, uh, 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 ramifications yeah. and like it, it really ripples out. That's amazing. Um, Very inspiring, Ari. Uh, so you said mm. people can still contribute. And yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, first of all, if you go to the deadseamuseum.com, you'll see a donate button there. That will mm -hmm. take you to the Head Start campaign. There's also a contact. People could reach out to me. Yeah, I need help. And I mean, this is not something that I'm personally funding. I'm investing mm -hmm. my time and energy and innovation, but I need you know the public to be a part of it, mm -hmm. you know, individually and collectively. And if someone knows how to get 50 mil, also they can reach out. It's in lots and lots of little payment uh, um, contributions add you know add up. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it could be individuals who have you know significant funds that want to be a part of this, mm -hmm. or it could be people who just you know want to support it. I mean, if I convince you which I may have done already, that the Dead Sea is super important and you don't want to see it deteriorate and disappear. And I'm saying, all right, you know, like save the, you know, sa you know save the forest, you know, give $10. Well, there's no giving $10 to the Dead Sea today that actually make an impact. But when you give $10, you know, to the Dead Sea Revival Project, the Amuta, it goes towards this museum project that's actually making an impact. We've already proven ourselves in terms of the content we've, you know, we've, we've done, both, you know, through Noam's photographs, his lectures, We've done with Spencer Tunick, so you know, we're constantly making headlines around the world and making people aware of what's going on. So it's a good use of funds. That's Amazing. awesome. That's awesome. Before we go, yes, um, we this episode and this podcast is made in collaboration with uh, IsraelNationalNews.com. Check them out. Arut Sheva, IsraelNationalNews.com uh, for news, for opinion pieces. The podcast is up on the website again, IsraelNationalNews.com, and of also, course, also the Australian Jewish News. Check them out at ajn.timesofisrael.com for the Australian angle on Jewish news. Also, go to tunjb.com/merch. Yes, and either get your get, mug. Get your mug. Actually, this, this mug is really cool. Yeah, have the do, nice do, do, do I get one also, or do I have to pay for it? Well, no, of course, <laughs> you're a guest. You, you now you now you put us on the spot, so we have to give you one for free. No, I'm kidding. How about you know the one that I take for free? Yeah, we we kind of sell to one of the listeners now, and ah. we charge them a higher price. Ah, yeah, okay. So they're sure. forty bucks now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so guys, you have but a nice. You, you have to make an exhibit in the Arad Museum. Of yeah. The cup. Just so included we have in nice the shop. Jewish boy BDS tears. What else BDS do you have? That's that's what that's we have it. right now. <laughs> Hopefully yeah. soon, uh, once people start buying them in the millions, we'll make a nice Jewish girl cup. Yeah. Um, because we are about equality. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, go to 2njb.com slash merch and get your, get your mugs. They're great gifts for Hanukkah. Hanukkah's right around the corner. Yep. Uh, and, of course, we do this on our free time, so go to 2njb.com slash donate uh, and help us out. But, of course, not before you donate to the uh, Arad Museum, yeah. to the Dead Sea Museum. Both. You can do both. Yes, yeah, that's absolutely. True. That's true. Thank you so yeah. much. You guys, it's really th inspiring. Thank you for having me. Hope I didn't speak too much. No. no. <laughs> that's the point of having you on. <laughs> I, I think it was the cup that inspired me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> thank you so much, Ari. Bye, guys. Thank Bye. You.